Well, we are this morning in Nehemiah chapter 6 and chapter 7. It's a lot to cover this morning, uh, but we're going to do our best to get through it in a timely manner. And in case you have been missed some of what we've talked about on Nehemiah, let me give you just a recap of where we are when we come to Nehemiah chapter 6. The events of the book of Nehemiah take place in 445 B.C. And about 70 years before the events of Nehemiah, in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire sent an army to conquer the people of Judea. And when they came, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the temple in Jerusalem. They left the walls in ruins. And they took all of the Jewish people out of Jerusalem and out of Judea into exile. Well, 70 years later, the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonians. And when they defeat the Babylonians, they allow the Jews to return to their homeland. But while the exiles were allowed to go back into Jerusalem, the city itself remained in ruins. And so that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1, where Nehemiah gets word of the fact that Jerusalem is still in ruins. And so he goes to the king of who he is a confidant. He's a trusted advisor to the Persian king. And he says, will you let me go back and rebuild the walls? And the king says, yes, you can go. He releases them. Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he begins this ambitious rebuilding campaign to build the walls there in Jerusalem. But throughout the, this construction, we see that Nehemiah faces opposition to the rebuilding of the walls. And his opposition comes primarily from three different guys. A guy by the name of Sanballat, who was the governor of the province of Samaria. A guy named Geshem, who was an Arab. And Tobiah, who was an Ammonite. And this morning, we're going to see these same three guys continue their opposition to Nehemiah and the Jews as they're working on the completion of the walls. This morning, as we look at chapter 6 and 7 in Nehemiah, this opposition from these three folks intensify as they try to plot and scheme to sow fear amongst the Jews who are rebuilding the wall. In fact, this theme of fear shows up five times in these two, in these two chapters. It, this entire passage is itself structured around the word or the concept of fear or being afraid. And so that's going to inform our structure as we go through the teaching today. We're going to base that based upon how we see this word fear show up throughout this passage. So first of all, we're going to see that Nehemiah has to face the fear of being slandered. And we see that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Secondly, we're going to see that Nehemiah faced the fear of spies. And there's two different incidents where we see him have to deal with spies. First in chapter 6, verses 10 to 14. And then in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. But then in conclusion, we're going to see the tables get turned. And we're going to see that the walls are completed. All of a sudden now, the people who have been opposing Nehemiah are going to face the fear of God. And we're going to see that in chapter 6, verses 16 and 15 and 16, and then again in chapter 7. So that's our, our outline for the narrative today. Fearing slander, chapter 6, 1 through 9. Facing, uh, fearing spies, chapter 6, 10 to 14 and 17 to 19. And then fearing God, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 in all of chapter 7. So like I said, a lot to cover this morning. But as we go through this outline, what we are going to learn is that we should not fear those who oppose us, but we should trust the Lord as we pursue the mission that he has given to us. So let's get started by looking at Nehemiah, face the fear of slander, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. Read along as, as I read this out loud. It says, now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakfirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm 
And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. So as we come to chapter six, we see the walls are just about complete. The only thing left to do is to install the gates at the wall. And Nehemiah's enemies, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, they realize that their opportunity to derail this project is coming to a close. So they send messengers to Nehemiah, and he says, let's meet in the plain of Ono. Now, the plain of Ono is north of Jerusalem, right on the border between Judah and Samaria. And Nehemiah is the governor of Judah. Sambalat is the governor of Samaria. So he's basically saying, let's meet in this neutral territory, and let's have a conversation. But Nehemiah refuses to meet them. He sends back a messenger that says, basically, look, I'm too busy rebuilding the walls for you. I don't have time to stop building the walls to meet with you. But I love that because Nehemiah's response here is that he understands what his mission is. He is there to rebuild the walls and he's not going to get distracted by meeting with people who don't share or who are opposed to his mission. But Sambalat doesn't give up. He sends messengers four times. And then as we pick it up in verse five, we actually see he sends a messenger a fifth time. Look what it says in verse five. It says, in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported amongst the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports, and so now come, let us take counsel together. Sambalat sends a messenger for the fifth time. And this time he tells Nehemiah that he's heard this rumor that Nehemiah is rebuilding walls only for the purpose that he can proclaim himself as a king and rebel against the Persian emperor out there. He's pretending to be concerned for Nehemiah's reputation. And so he wants to warn him about this rumor out there. But did you notice that this fifth letter, there's something different about this letter. He says it's an open letter. Normally, if these government officials are passing communication between each other, they would write it on a scroll and they would roll it up and then they would seal it with wax with their seal so that they would know that that letter was secure as it's going from one official to the other. But in this case, Sanballat has not sealed the letter. It's an open letter. And why is that the case? That means everyone who is a messenger who's carrying that letter can read what's in it. Because what Sambalat is doing is he's not actually trying to protect Nehemiah from this rumor. He's trying to spread this rumor. In fact, he's probably the one who started the rumor. So how does Nehemiah respond to it? Look at verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, it says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they wanted to what? To frighten us. Thinking that their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Nia responds to this slanderous rumor by saying, that's not true. You're just making this up. And Nehemiah knows this because he knows his own heart. First of all, he would never proclaim himself a king. He would never rebel against the Persians. Because remember, Nehemiah is loyal to the Persian king, Artaxerxes. It's Artaxerxes who allowed him to come back. He used to be the cupbearer for the king, which is a very, very trusted advisor. 
But secondly, he knows that this rumor is not true because it says here that the prophets would, would proclaim him as king. But what Sanballat doesn't realize is that the prophets don't actually, aren't able to do that. Because in the Old Testament, the prophets do talk about a coming king of Judah. But that king is going to be coming through the line of David. And Nehemiah knows that he is not of that royal line. And so, of course, he is not going to be proclaiming himself as king. And the prophets will not either. So Nehemiah sees through this ruse. He knows that Sambalat doesn't want to meet him to protect him from these rumors. Rather, Sambalat and Geshem, they have started these rumors. And they've started these rumors for one purpose. Look what it says again in verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that their hands will drop from the work and will not be done. The goal of the slander was to create fear in Nehemiah and the people. Because even if the rumor is not true, if that rumor gets back to the Persian emperor, you can be sure he's going to send out an army to make sure that there's nobody rebelling against them. And so the only way for them to overcome this fear would be to just stop working on the wall and let it go. But does that worry Nehemiah? How does he respond? What does he do? In verse 9, it says he prays. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So how do we handle rumors? How do we handle it when people slander us or say false things about us? Do we feel the need to defend ourselves at every rumor or lie that's spread about us? Do we allow rumors to distract us from God's calling? Do we fight back by trading insults with the person who's insulted us or who started the rumor? When Nehemiah faced slander from his enemies, it didn't paralyze him with fear. It didn't distract him from the work that God had for him. And he refused to entertain the rumors. He only addressed them enough to dismiss them. He said, that's not true. And then he asked God to strengthen his hand so that he could continue the work. And what Nehemiah didn't do is waste his time by responding in kind. Nehemiah didn't waste his time by slandering his opponents in return. Unfortunately, we live in a culture today where that's the normal response. Today in our culture, if somebody insults you, you fire an insult back. If somebody slanders, you slander in return. People will tell you today that you can't afford to play nice because our enemies don't play by the same rules we do. So we have to fight fire with fire or we're going to lose the battle. But as Jesus followers, we never trade insult for insult. Jesus has called us to be above that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The apostle Peter tells us exactly how to respond to slander in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We don't repay evil for evil. We don't replay insult for insult or slander for slander. Instead, what are we to do? It says we are to bless our enemies. We are to honor Christ. Yes, we should be prepared to defend our faith, but we do so, it says, with gentleness and with respect. Why? So that when we are slandered, when we are insulted, it'll be our enemies who are put to shame because it's going to be so obvious that what they're saying about us is not true. 
Because our gentle and respectful interaction will in and of itself refute the slander that they say against us. So when people slander us or they spread rumors about us, if they insult us, let's not be afraid. Let's not be discouraged. Let's not be distracted. And certainly let us not return the insult. Instead, let's do like Nehemiah did. He prays and then he trusts God to deal with it. And what does he do? He gets back to work rebuilding the walls. We should not fear those who oppose us, but we should trust the Lord as we pursue the mission that he has given to us. Now, Nehemiah not only has to face the fear of slander, but he also has to face the fear of spies within his midst. And we see two different stories here in this passage about spies that he has to deal with. And the first one is in Nehemiah 6, verse 10. Take a look at what it says. Now, I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methotabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me Why? Because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be, here's that word again, afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. We're introduced to a new character here in verse 10. Shemaiah. And Shemaiah is a Jewish leader. He's one of Nehemiah's own countrymen. And and it says that he was confined to his home. So Nehemiah went to his house. Now, we don't know why he was confined. We don't know what the circumstances of that are. But we do know this about Shemaiah. We discover very quickly that he is a spy, that he has been paid by Tobiah and Sanballat. And and Shemaiah says to Nehemiah, your life is in danger. Your your enemies are coming to assassinate you. So so we need to go and we need to lock ourselves inside the temple to hide from these assassins. Now remember, Jerusalem is still in the process of being rebuilt. The walls aren't completed yet. There's There's not very many places that they could go hide. The only building that is completed and that could provide any protection for him would be the temple. So this makes sense that Symbolic would suggest that. Let's go to the temple. Let's hide there. We can get away from these assassins. But what does Nehemiah say in response to his suggestion? Verse 11, it says, should such a man as I run away? And what man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not give, I will not go in. Nehemiah has two statements that he says about himself. First of all, he says, he is not the kind of man who's going to run away from his problems. Nehemiah does not hide from adversity, even if there's a threat against his very life. To hide away in the temple would be an act of cowardice. And we know, as we've seen through Nehemiah, Nehemiah is no coward. But secondly, and more importantly, Nehemiah is not the kind of leader who's going to violate the law just to save his own skin. You see, in the Old Testament law, only the priests were allowed inside the sanctuary of the temple. That when people came to worship in the temple, they worshiped in the courtyard outside the temple, but only the priests could actually go into the building because that was reserved for them. Numbers 18.7 says, any outsider who comes near the sanctuary shall be put to death. So if Nehemiah were to hide himself in the temple, he would be violating God's law and he'd be subject to the death penalty. 
And Nehemiah is not the kind of leader who's going to violate the law just to save his own skin. You know, sometimes we are told or we think that if a situation becomes desperate enough, the normal rules do not apply. When things become dire or life-threatening, we don't need to obey the rules because there's a greater principle at play. We're told that when the stakes are too high, we shouldn't be limited by the rules. In other words, we're told that the ends will justify the means. And that's Nehemiah's temptation here. Shemaiah says to Nehemiah, the stakes are high. Man, your life is on the line. You're going to be assassinated. And, and that probably rings true because from what we've seen of, of his enemies at that point, Sambalat and Tobiah, I don't think political assassination is beyond them. But Nehemiah, while he may be avoiding the assassination by going and taking refuge in the temple, he knows that he faces an even greater threat to his life by disobeying God. And that's why Nehemiah says, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Nehemiah understands the seriousness of sin. And he knows that disobeying God is every bit as threatening as it is a death threat, to have a death threat from his enemies. And here's the truth for us as well. Disobeying God's law is more threatening than any political, social, or interpersonal threat we face. And if we think that the ends justify the means, what we are actually doing is we are discounting the very seriousness of sin. Jesus states this principle himself in Matthew 10, 10 28. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who could destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Jesus is saying that disobeying God's law condemns us, both our body and our soul, to hell. Now, Jesus, through his death on the cross, has provided a way of, of escape from that condemnation. Praise be to God. But the principle remains that sin is a far greater threat to us than anything that anybody can do to us. Furthermore, Nehemiah hiding in the temple is not just against the law. It's also a political trap. Because Shemaiah knows that if Nehemiah goes into the temple, his enemies can now use that against him. By hiding in the temple, he's going to lose the moral authority to, that he has to lead the people. Last week when we looked at chapter 5, Pastor Steve told us that one of the things that made Nehemiah such a great leader, such an influential leader, is that he had moral authority. He, he walked the walk. He led by example. He never asked the people to do what he was not willing to do. But if he were to cowardly hide away inside the temple, breaking the law in the process, Nehemiah could be labeled a hypocrite and he would lose all of his moral authority. So be warned. When you are told that the situation is too dire for the normal rules to apply, that's a trap. And that compromise is going to cost you your moral authority, and you will actually decrease your influence. The ends never justify the means, but it's the means which justify the ends. Now, what's particularly insidious about this whole incident here is that Shemaiah's deceitfulness was in the context of him saying he was speaking for God. Shemaiah framed his advice as if it was a prophecy from God. Did you see that? Take a look in verse 12. He says, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had announced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sabalat had hired him. So Shemaiah said that God was the one who told him, go tell Nehemiah that he needs to hide out. Nehemiah, the Lord has given me a word of prophecy for you. You are to take refuge in the temple. 
And then he gets other prophets to in on this plot. So in verse 14, we read about the prophetess Nodiah. And these other prophets are telling Nehemiah that God wants him to hide out in the temple. So how is it that Nehemiah knew that these prophecies were false prophecies? How did he know that they were not sent from God, even though they said they were being sent from God? Well, because Nehemiah knew his Bible. Nehemiah knew the Old Testament law. He knew Numbers 18.7, and he knew, knows that if somebody says they have a word from the Lord, but that word contradicts the scripture, that person is a liar, and God did not send them. People, I need to warn you. There are false prophets. There are false teachers who are saying they have a message from God, but that message is in conflict with the Bible, and we need to be on guard for that. Peter warns us of this in 2 Peter 2. Peter says, but false prophets also arose amongst the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing up themselves swift destruction. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. See, just because someone has the title of pastor or a Bible teacher doesn't mean that they necessarily speak for God. There are many pastors and teachers who are proclaiming things that are in contradiction to what the Bible says. And so we need to be discerning. We we need to look at whatever somebody claims that they are speaking for God. We need to test that against the scriptures. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We are to test and evaluate Everyone who claims to speak for God. And I would tell you that that includes the pastors and the teachers here at Ecclesia. You are not just to blindly accept what Pastor Steve or I or anybody else on the teaching team says, but we need to evaluate everything we hear by the measurement of God's word. Today, we have access to more Bible teaching than anybody else in history has had. There are thousands upon thousands of podcasts and YouTubers and bloggers who all have a claim to be speaking a word from the Lord. And many of those are actually telling you that it's okay to disobey God's law. Now, now they're not going to come right out and say that. They're not going to like say, hey, welcome to my podcast and let's talk about how to disobey God's law. They're not going to do it that way. What they're going to do is they're going to take the text of the Bible and they're going to manipulate it. They're going to twist it so that it means just exactly the opposite of what it says. They're going to say things like, well, well, this applied to those people back then, but it doesn't apply to us today. And and then they're going to raise the alarm. And they're going to say, if we we don't re-update our understanding of the scripture, well, the church is going to get left behind. That the church is going to uh, end up on the wrong side of history. and, And our kids are going to walk away from the faith because we haven't kept up with the times. But people, let's not be naive. Let's not be taken in. Let us know and study the scripture so we don't fall prey to the traps set for us by these false teachers. And if we know and have faith in the word of God, we will have no reason to fear false teachers. We should not fear those who oppose us, but we should trust the Lord as we pursue the mission that he has given to us. Well, as we read on, we discover that Shemaiah is not the only spy that Nehemiah has to deal with. We also see some additional spies down in verse 17. So we're going to skip over verses 15 and 16. Don't worry, we'll come back to those. And let's take a look starting in verse 17 for these other spies that Nehemiah has to deal with. It says in verse 17, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah 
and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Uriah. And his, and his son, Jehonahan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to what? To make me afraid. So, what's going on here? There's this group of nobles, it says, Jewish nobles, these aristocrats, who have been keeping up a regular correspondence with Tobiah, Nehemiah's enemy. And the reason why they are in this correspondence is because they have sworn an oath to him. Now, it's not clear from the text what that oath was all about, but it does seem to be wrapped up in some family dynamics here. Because here, as we read through this passage, we we learn that both Tobiah and Tobiah's son had married daughters of these Jewish nobles. So here we have Nehemiah, who's been working closely with these nobles, these leaders in Judah, but come to find out they've been in correspondence with, with the enemy. And they've been lobbying on behalf of Tobiah. And it says even worse, that they've been reporting to Tobiah everything that Nehemiah has said and done. Which which means he's, he's basically, they've been spying on him. And Nehemiah, as he's been working with them, he discovers that not only that they've been intermarrying with those people. These are the people that have been working side by side with Nehemiah. They they have been helping him to rebuild the wall. And in fact, if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 3, we read that Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, he is listed as somebody who helped rebuild a section of the wall. So he had built the wall, but now here in chapter 6, we discover that his daughter had actually married Tobiah's son. So what a betrayal. See, Meshulam was on board when Nehemiah started building the walls, and he had caught Nehemiah's vision, and he was willing to even devote time and energy to help rebuild the walls. And yet somewhere along the line, family pressures, the opinions of his in-laws, these old commitments all caused Meshulam to betray Nehemiah. And I think Meshulam is a warning for us. Because when the vision is new and the vision is fresh, it looks like everybody's rallying to the cause. Man, we, we want to be part of that. We, we get caught up in that. It's so exciting to be there. We want to help build the walls. But then as things kind of settle down after that initial excitement, our old allegiances come back and our friends and our family members start questioning what we, do, what we are doing. And before you know it, we found ourselves betraying the very mission that God has laid out for us because we are more afraid of them than we are about faithfulness. Proverbs 26 says, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find The voices of our friends and our family, old commitments, they're going to want to draw you back from the mission God has laid out for us. But let's not be fearful. Instead, let's be faithful to God's calling. We should not fear those who oppose us, but we should trust the Lord as we pursue the mission that he has given to us. So we've been tracing this theme of fear through Nehemiah 6 and 7. So far, we've seen Nehemiah face the fear of slander. We've seen him face the fear of uh, of the spies, both from uh, Shemaiah and from these Jewish nobles. But now this theme of fear, fear switches. And it's no longer Nehemiah's enemies who are trying to create fear in, in Nehemiah. But rather, now that the walls get finished, we discover that Nehemiah's enemies are the ones who are afraid. And they are afraid of God. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. We're going to jump back up those two verses that we missed. 
And we see what happens when the wall is finished. Nehemiah 6.15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in, the, in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The wall is finished, it says, on the 25th day of Elul, which would be around October 7th by our calendar. And that means that the walls were finished less than six months from when Nehemiah leaves Persia to come back to Jerusalem. It's rebuilt itself in 52 days, which is really remarkable. In fact, archaeologists back in the 1920s have actually found and dug up Nehemiah's walls. And while the finish on the walls there was, was, uh, was pretty rough, as you would expect from work completed so quickly, the walls themselves are pretty, are pretty solid. They're nine feet thick. And the speed at which these solid walls were completed caused the nations around Judah to become afraid, as it says here, to, to fall greatly in their own esteem. Now that the tables have been turned, instead of terrorizing the people of Judah with fear, now the enemies of Judah are afraid. Because if God had, was able to help the people of Judah rebuild the walls so quickly, then they knew that Nehemiah and the people of Judah could not be defeated. Why? Because they had God on their side. For Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls was never about a construction project. For Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls was about God's glory. With the, with the city in ruins, with the walls in ruins, it gave people the, the right to malign the character of God. Because if God was great, how was it that he allowed the city to be destroyed? And as long as the city was destroyed, people would reject the God of Israel because clearly he can't fix anything. But now with the walls nearly complete, everyone can see God was helping them. So now rather than maligning the character of God, they fear God. With the walls rebuilt, God's reputation has been restored because even the nations around Israel can see that the God of Israel is strong and he's mighty and he is able to save his people. And so they fear God. But it's not just the enemies of God that fear him. It's also the leadership of God who fear him as well. But this is not a negative fear. In the leadership of Israel, it is actually a positive fear. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanai, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from amongst the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. When we come to chapter 7, we realize that the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem is going to take more than just rebuilding the walls. Because now that the walls have been completed, the gates have been installed, we discover that Nehemiah gives us uh, an assessment of the state of the city. And at this point, he says the city is wide and the city is large, but the city is sparsely populated. And there seems to be a housing shortage in the city of Jerusalem. Archaeologists looking at Jerusalem at this time estimate that the population of Jerusalem was maybe 400, maybe 500 people. So it's not a very big city at this point, and it needs to get repopulated. If he's going to reestablish Jerusalem, it needs to be more than just putting in walls. He needs to repopulate the city. Because remember, rebuilding the walls is not really the goal. 
The goal was that Nehemiah wanted to rebuild this community of God's people centered around the worship of God. And for this ultimate goal, the city would have to be repopulated. So to help with the repopulation, Nehemiah does three things. First of all, he establishes the city leadership. Secondly, he sets up security measures for the city. And then in verse 5, which we'll see in just a little bit, Nehemiah takes a census of the city. So the first thing he does is he sets up leadership. And he picks two guys to be in charge of Jerusalem. And it gets a little confusing because one guy is named Hanani and the other guy is named Hananiah. So two guys, very similar names. The first one, Hanani, we've seen before. This is Nehemiah's brother. And if you remember back in chapter one, it's Hanani who sent a letter to Nehemiah and said, the walls are in a sorry state. So in some sense, it's Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, is the one that kind of kicked off this whole thing. But Hananiah, we haven't come across before now. And the second leader, Nehemiah tells us about Hananiah in verse two. He says, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And here we see that, that theme of fear show up for the fifth and final time in this passage. Throughout the story, Sambalat and Tobiah have been trying to instill fear in Nehemiah and in the people of Judah. And then once the walls have been built, they are fearing God. And now we see Hananiah who's characterized positively as someone who fears the Lord. Last week, Pastor Steve uh, talked about and explained what the fear of God is. And, and he told us last week that the fear of God is not a paralyzing terror, but rather it's a deep reverential awe where we know who God is and we know who we are in comparison to him. And Nehemiah says, Hananiah feared God. And because he feared God, he was faithful. His fear of God and his faithfulness are no coincidence because faithfulness and the fear of God go together. It's the fear of God that gives us the confidence to faithfully persevere when others are trying to make us afraid. Last week, Pastor Steve quoted from Oswald Chambers, and I think this quote from Oswald Chambers applies really well to Hananiah. Oswald Chambers says, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Isn't that a great quote? Why did Nehemiah put Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem? Because he feared God. He was more afraid to have God as his enemy than he was to have Sambalat and Tobiah as his enemy. And so he proved faithful to Nehemiah and he proved faithful to God. And so we should not fear those who oppose us, but we should fear the Lord as we pursue the mission that he has given to us. So Nehemiah, first of all, subpoints city leadership. Secondly, he sets up security measures for the city. So in verse three, we see that he instructs Hananiah and Hananiah to uh, limit the hours that the gates of the city are going to be opened. And then he appoints guards to be at the guard posts and in front of the houses. And then the third thing that Nehemiah does to establish the city is to take a census of the people. And we see this in verse five. So take a look at verse five of chapter seven. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, and then from verse 6 all the way through verse 73, he quotes from this book of genealogy that he's found. So he wants to take a census of the people. He wants to know who's all there, and to help identify who those people are, he grabs an old genealogy book that he's found, talking about the people who first came back from the exile. And I will spare you reading uh, verses 6 through 73 for the sake of time and for the sake of your attention span. But it turns out that this book of genealogy that he's quoting here in Nehemiah chapter 7, it is virtually identical 
to Ezra chapter 2. So if you were to go back one book of your Bible to Ezra chapter 2, and you were to compare it to Nehemiah 7, verses 6 to 73, it's almost identical. It's like a straight-up copy of that. So why in the world would Nehemiah copy this book of genealogy? Why would he be copying chapter 2 out of Ezra and putting it here in his book, Nehemiah chapter 7? Well, remember that Nehemiah is trying to not just repopulate the city. What Nehemiah is trying to do, he's trying to rebuild a community of God's people centered around the worship of God. So Nehemiah is trying to figure out who are the true people of God. And he does this by looking at the genealogical record. Now, you may be thinking, isn't that a little bit racist? I mean, think about it. What, what, what he's doing is he's looking at the genealogical record, and if these people are not part of the established lineage, they're not going to be allowed to live in Jerusalem. That, that sounds like racial discrimination, doesn't it? But this is not about race or ethnicity. We know this because in Ezra chapter 6, verse 2, we see people who are not ethnically Jewish, but who have decided to worship the God of Israel, who are allowed to live in the community of God's people because they worship the true God. So this is not about racism. It, instead, what it is, it's an attempt to distinguish the true people of God from those who are opposed to him. This, this, the distinction is not a matter of intolerance. It's not a matter of exclusivity. Instead, it's protecting the mission of God that had been given to Nehemiah. So what Nehemiah is doing with the census is he is making sure that those who are coming to repopulate the city are committed to the same purpose, the same vision, and are committed to the same mission that he has received from God. Because God has given Nehemiah a, a, the mission not just to rebuild the walls. He has given him a mission to rebuild the community of God's people centered around the worship of God. And rebuilding the walls, we discover, is just the first phase of that. That going forward now, next week when we start in Nehemiah chapter 8, we discover there's a bigger issue and a harder problem to solve than just rebuilding the walls. Because the hearts of the people are not oriented towards God. And so starting next week in chapter 8, we see Nehemiah team up with the priest, Ezra, and they begin to teach people the word of God. And a revival happens because that is it. That's the harder piece is bringing the people's hearts to God. But that's for next week. We will, we'll leave that for Pastor Steve. But you know what? Nehemiah's vision for repopulating Jerusalem is very similar to the vision we have here at Ecclesia. Nehemiah wants to build a community of God's people centered around the proper worship of God. And that's exactly what we want to do here at Ecclesia. We want to have a community of God's people who are centered around the proper worship of God. Several years ago, uh, the elders of the church, we put out a values statement. And along with that value statement, we also created a vision statement. And you can see this vision statement. It's on our website, right on the front page. If you go to our Connect class, we're going to tell you all about it. And if you haven't heard this, it's good for you to hear. This is what we set up to be the vision of our church is. That we want to be a church that is creating a healthy and inspired community that reaches, teaches, and releases people with the gospel through the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's who we want to be. We want to be a church that is creating a healthy and inspired community that reaches, teaches, and releases people of the gospel through the leading of the Holy Spirit. That sounds an awful lot what, what Nehemiah was trying to do with Jerusalem when he's trying to create this community of God's people centered around the worship of God. That's what we're trying to do here as well. And Nehemiah, as he does that, he faces both external and internal opposition 
He has to face the fear of slander. He has to face the fear of spies in his midst. His opponents are, are using distractions and false allegations and political traps and even death threats to terrorize him to give up on that mission. And just as Nehemiah faced that opposition, today the church throughout the world faces that opposition as well. As the church works to make disciples and to build the church of Jesus Christ, the church today faces unprecedented persecution throughout the world. There are millions of our fellow Jesus followers who fear government, who have governments who are against Christianity, who are actively working against it, where it's illegal to be a Christian, where it's illegal to share the gospel, where it's illegal to meet and, uh, on a Sunday morning. And we need to pray for our brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ who face such fear. Not just on this, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, but we need to be praying for them throughout the year. Meanwhile, we are blessed to live in a place where we don't need to fear for our lives for following Jesus. But nonetheless, we should still expect that there's going to be opposition to our mission. Both people outside the church and people inside the church will stand opposed to our mission to build the kingdom of God here. But rather than fear those who oppose us, may we fear God instead, thus proving to be faithful to him and the mission that he's given to us. May we not fear those who oppose us, but may we trust the Lord as we pursue the mission that he has given to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.